Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Gilbert Doctorow. Gilbert is an independent political analyst based in Brussels. He chose his third career of public intellectual after finishing up a 25-year career as corporate executive and outside consultant to multinational corporations doing business in Russia and Eastern Europe, which culminated in the position of managing director Russia during the years 1995 through 2000. He has published his memoirs of his 25 years of doing business in and around the Soviet Union and Russia, 1975 through 2000, called Memoirs of a Russianist, Volume 1, From the Ground Up, that was published on November 10th, 2020. Volume 2, Russia in the Roaring 1990s, was released in February of 2021. Gilbert's in a unique position based in Brussels to observe both the U.S. and Western media on the Ukraine war and also the Russian media and Eastern Europe media. So I'm very anxious to talk to him about his perspectives on this. Gilbert, welcome. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So I have to say, I don't think I've ever seen coverage of a war that the United States itself was involved in, like the coverage that we're getting on the major media outlets in the United States. Every webpage, NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN, you have to scroll down to get news of anything else. What is your take on the coverage here in the United States and how it relates to how this is being covered in Russia and elsewhere? It's understandable that there would be a lot of coverage in the States because this event, though it is nominally a war between Russia and Ukraine, is really a proxy war between Russia and the United States. The United States is given massive support, billions and billions of dollars, to arm and train Ukraine to, to use Ukraine territory as a platform, a forward platform, to put offensive weapon systems and personnel right at the Russian border. So the, for the Russians, this was a very big threat to their national security. For the United States, 
it was an important feature in the overall program of containment of Russia and preventing Russia from posing a challenge to United States global hegemony. There are, there in the United States, and not only in the United States, it's been rather surprising that Russia has upset the, the playbook, that Russia has taken over the, the role of, of chief challenger and military challenger to the United States at a time when the conventional wisdom in the States and in Europe is that Russia is still a declining power, only a possible spoiler, and, the, and there has to be a pivot to Asia, to China, because China is the massive economy. China is the fastest building and military force in the world and will be in 10 or 20 years if it's not stopped a greater power in the world than the United States is. So the, China, the, the Russians have indeed been a spoiler, but not in the sense that was originally intended. They are a spoiler in the sense that they have returned the, ten, the attention of the United States and of the world at large to Europe. Europe was supposed to be settled. Europe was supposed to have no security issues. Europe was almost completely dominated by NATO, which is in turn dominated by the United States. So what is there left to talk about in Europe? That was the American and the West European view. The Russians have now spoiled that completely. They, have, they came out in November and December with, with their fists up, saying this doesn't work. We want in. We, it's no longer, there is no security architecture in Europe if we are not part of it. And they issued a challenge, an ultimatum of sorts, in these two draft treaties with the United States and with NATO, in which the objective was to halt the progression of NATO to the east, namely into Ukraine and secondarily into Georgia, which was halt, which has been in suspense since 2008, and to, in fact, roll back NATO to the military position it had in 1997 before the, these, the five waves of expansion of NATO occurred. So that was their challenge. Uh, and since they got a big net from the United States, which is what they wanted, not that they not, wanted on uh, the world to see, they would have been very happy if they didn't get a net and if they had gone to negotiations for those treaties. But they weren't surprised that they got the no. And they had the whole show to the whole why they were going to move on to their plan B. Plan B was to have a military operation, or as we would more simply call it, an invasion of Ukraine, to do what Mr. Ryabkov, the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, a really tough guy, said just as these negotiations with the US and NATO were starting in December, move or we will move you. Since NATO didn't move, the, the um, military operation that began in the, in the third week of February was to move NATO back. And that's where we are today. The fighting has been very, very severe in some places, but by no means matches what, what the, the headlines on our newspapers, which are largely propagandistic. But the, the, these events would occupy a lot of attention in American media is entirely understandable, given the nature of the challenge, which is to unseat or to, to reduce the credibility of American global hegemony and to move towards a multipolar world. Before we get to some of the news coverage and how it might be different outside the United States or the NATO countries, I understand the motivation on the part of the Russian government and Putin 
that he feels threatened with the NATO weapons and troops doing exercises in Ukraine. So he goes in. What I'm not exactly clear on is what's his end game if he wins? Let's just say he does a regime change. Is he planning on staying there forever to keep Ukraine at the status quo? Or if not, what stops NATO from just picking up and doing it again? Well, the scenario that you described is part of the America propaganda barrage. It is U.S., Ukraine good, Russia bad. Ukraine bunny rabbits, and Russia is the big bad wolf. <laughs> I mean, this is all, so much of American uh, political discourse is for the children's sandbox. And that is that is not a new issue, but it is an issue of great consequence when the the stakes are what they are today, which is that a possibility of a of a an armed clash between the two, two the world's two biggest nuclear powers because they manage their disagreements over what the Russians wanted to be a buffer state uh, of Ukraine and the United States wanted to be an advanced post against Russia in the Ukraine. So the stakes are very big. The storylines are very they simplify. They uh, we we've been dealing with with simplified cartoon like images to 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 convey what foreign international affairs are about for some time in the states and that's very sad i go back to to uh, george bush jr uh, he was famous for his comic book comic strip explanations of, of of what we're facing in the world and so it is the dumbing down is is sad uh, hopefully it isn't going to be tragic in this regard i would say that there the the current us president is head and shoulders above all of his advisors and head and shoulders of a couple of his predecessors, like, like George W. Bush. He, he has a feel for the threat the, to the jugular that the Russians are posing and to their ability to carry out. The other saving grace in the States, which unfortunately has nothing to do with public opinion in the States because public opinion is, is under the thumb of, of the mass media, which are very, very one-sided, as you were suggesting. The other saving grace in the States is the Pentagon. That is a very difficult thing for people in the anti-war movement to accept. <laughs> the generals could be better at handling relations, foreign relations than, than uh, civilian cabinet, cabinet members. But regrettably, uh, that is a fact. We, there are direct communication lines between the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, between the U.S. Um, Secretary of Defense and their Russian counterparts, and they all have their wits about them, and they all know they all have a sense of responsibility, given the fact that these two state countries have about ninety percent of all the nuclear weapons in the world. So that is going our way, that is saving us from ourselves. But the press uh, is, is is pushing in the opposite direction. Very sadly, it's a hundred percent simplification, cartoon stories, and outright outrageous lies. Everything that Mr. Savensky's government says, which is probably saying from a script that he's getting from the CIA, is taken at face value, and the Russian side is not covered at all, or is mentioned with the greatest derision as being just fake news. Now, you mentioned at the outset that I have a nice perch in, in Brussels, and, and I'm able to watch to look two ways. And that is my added value, in fact, in what my writings, 
that I am taking very seriously mainstream publications and, and electronic media, like the Financial Times, like the New York Times, like the Euro News or the BBC or even CNN and on the one side. And I'm taking the Russian state media and, pri- and commercial media, both uh, print and electronic. However, I have to add a little note here. My, even my ability to look two ways is in the last week or two been compromised by a, such a heavy hand censorship, which is very much like the jamming that went on in the midst of the Cold War. It's not just Sputnik and uh, RT that have been shut down by the United States and by all the member states of the European Union. It is everything. everything. The, every voice in Russia is being shut down. YouTube has taken off the air. <clears throat> all of the Russian news providers that is systematically supported and platform up to a week ago. At the same time, concerted hacking, which I can only understand as being government-directed here in Europe and I imagine in the States, has overwhelmed the servers of all kinds in Russia, even Sberbank. People trying to sign on to Sberbank to access their their visa accounters or, or to look at their or to make a, a, a transfer to to one of their to a vendor, have found that for days on end you can't get in because the servers are overwhelmed by hacking. Um, so at the present time, my ability to monitor what the Russian media are saying is limited to the, the very few channels that are not constantly overwhelmed or simply the guys go out for a, for a smoke break and you can get into the server. That's one thing. But more importantly and more dependably, I have, I have a parabolic antenna and I, and I get satellite the satellite channels. So that's the, in Czechoslovakia, in Czech, in Czech Republic, by the way, you can be fined, a heavy fine for having for receiving by your satellite antenna a Russian broadcast. Fortunately, that has not reached out to the rest of the European Union. But this is a pure fascism, pure fascism. The, and it is the most self-destructive censorship. I have written one essay in the last two weeks <clears throat> called You Won't Know What Hit You and Why. And that is, if you don't know what the other side is saying, if you don't hear the warnings that the Russian general staff is making every day when they have their briefings of what they're going to do next, then you will be obliterated, literally, without knowing why. So the attempts to silence the whole of Russian by jamming and by hacking and by simple prohibition is very dangerous for all of us, not for the Russians, for all of us. Yeah, I agree. And it, it kind of reminds me in the early days of the so-called war on terror here, some people were saying, well, we ought to listen to what the people were calling terrorists are saying are their reasons. And if you said that, you were called a traitor or you're taking the side of the terrorists. And Ron Paul in particular, who I was a supporter of during his presidential campaigns, made the great point that, listen, even if you think these are criminals. You need a motive for a crime. Even a prosecutor 
looks for a motive so that he can make his case. So it's just nonsensical to not even know what the other side is saying. But I wanted, before I forget, to ask you, do you have a sense of how the military operation is going? And is it going differently than we're being told here in the United States? Well, the Russian military operation has not performed for the Russian side as they anticipated. And there will be uh, consequences within the Russian military intelligence. The information which they were feeding to the Kremlin was faulty. And that became clear in the first few days of the war. And what was wrong was the assumption that the crackpots, the radical terrorists who were the force behind the throne in Kiev ever since the February 2014 coup d'etat that was engineered and supported by Victoria Nuland, by the American ambassador in Kiev, and by $5 billion that was spent to win over a large swath of the, of the population. There was the, the understanding that, that this was limited to maybe 10% of the military, 10% of the population were neo-fascists, but the rest, that the rest of Ukrainian society was healthy and the rest of the military was professional. It was a great shock to the Russians to discover that that was a falsehood, that the eight years since 2014 had been used to bring great discipline into the military, whether they were so-called political officers, as you had in the Soviet Union, people who would shoot, <laughs> shoot you from in the back if you were making the wrong moves, or if simply brainwashing had reached its culmination and, and this nationalist zealotry had become widespread in the top levels of the military and then was passed down. Whichever is the explanation, the net result is that the Russian game plan of a rather quick victory by separating the, the battalions of nationalist radicals from the professional army did not work. And they found themselves facing a much bigger threat than they had assumed. That <clears throat> the threat has, has persisted up to the very present. And what do I mean? Why didn't Russia go in and just smash up the cities and take over? Well, <clears throat> That's the American way of war. And certainly it has some things going for it. Humanitarian interest is not what it has going for it. There is a logic that you, you, you do well killing a fly with a hammer rather than you know, go, going for a, for a fly sweater. It may be, in some cases, uh, more humane to overwhelm the enemy and force them to capitulate before things get out of hand than to proceed step by step in a, in a rational raising of terror. I mean, that's what the Vietnam War was all about. It was ra it was rational, humane up to a certain point until things really got out of control, but it was step by step rather than all at once. The Russians' approach to the Ukraine problem was tempered by the fact that this is almost uh, relatives. The two, the two countries have, well, Ukraine is a country only since 1991, the, the two peoples have been intermarried, have moved from one to the other and the other back for decades. And so there are so many Russians in high places, not just 
in, in, in the general public who have roots in Ukraine, who have relatives in Ukraine, who have spouses from there and children who are, whose identity is mixed. And so the, from the very beginning, it wasn't a question of the United States going into Iraq and busting everything up because it couldn't give a damn who these people were. The, you, the Russians would have necessarily wanted to avoid scenes of horror on their television screens because the peoples are very close. I don't mean to say that a fratricidal war isn't an ugly war. There can be nothing at places and times more ugly than a civil war. But in the Russian case, they wanted to avoid that type of obscenity on the screen every day, which could translate back. It's not just not just humanitarian interest, but could translate back in dissent and civil disobedience. So from the standpoint of maintaining a firm control on the home front, it made good sense not to do anything excessively violent in approaching the Ukraine. The problem is that the way of war that the Ukrainian army had developed for itself, probably with American uh, consulting, was urban warfare. And they have perhaps 25, 30,000 troops in the center of, of Kharkiv, which was the first city that the Russians approached to take over. And it became clear, what does I mean by embedded? They chased people out of hospitals and out of residential apartment buildings, and they put tanks well, or artillery into those buildings it, with the intent of firing on the Russians, drawing counterfire back into residential neighborhoods, and creating massive civilian losses, which could then be shown to the world's NGOs and shown on BBC and shown on CNBC as the Russians being brutal and deserving all the punishment we were meeting out to them. That was their game plan, and the Russians didn't want to fall into it. But that meant that they had been so-called stalled, as, as our Western papers call it, stalled outside of Kiev. Well, stalled is not because they don't have uh, treads on their, on, their, on their tanks. It's because they don't want massive civilian loss. Now, the, the good news from the Russian standpoint, happened this morning. I can't find it because so, many, so much of the Russian media is, as I said, hacked, being hacked now and, and is not accessible. But a friend caught it this morning that the spokesman for the Russian military general, Konoshenkov, explained that his people have now denazified the Azov battalion. And he said, I leave it to your imagination what that means. Well, let me speak in open text. It means they murdered them all. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> 3,000 of them or more, who were the most fascists, openly fascists, with all the insignia, the swastikas that, they, that, that you'd expect, and had been a major political weight on the federal government in Kiev. They, if, if we can understand Mr. General Konoshenkov's words, they have all been slaughtered, which is a good thing for Ukraine, not just for, for the Russian the Russian military cause. However, there are still dozens of tens of thousands of of Russian of sorry of Ukrainian regular forces in Kiev, in Kharkiv, and the question is, what do you do about them without having tremendous casualties, <clears throat> the uh, without having it all exploited, uh, as it has been so successfully by the by the Ukrainians. In the incident, for example, of this supposed Russian artillery attack 
on a hospital. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical, too crazy in the head. I wanted to ask you about that because when you said that they had their military kind of embedded in civilian spaces, this is Russia's claim about what really happened with that hospital. So what's the truth of that? Well, we don't know. I can say without a moment's hesitation that almost everything that the Ukrainian government puts up and the Western press immediately prints up or shows on the screens is propaganda. The Russians are not innocents either. So I don't want to say that every last word coming out of the Russian sources is God's honest truth. Of course it isn't. There is more logic to what they're saying than to what the Ukrainians are saying. The Ukrainians are systematically saying that the Russians are uh, firing on their own people, that is in the, in the Donbass, in order to, to have a false flag case. <laughs> well, the, uh, in the, in, if, where it's possible to verify, and at the opening days of this war, it was possible to verify at the line of demarcation where the artillery strikes were landing, on the Russian side, that is the, Don, the Donbass side, or on the Ukrainian side of the line of demarcation. And it was massively demonstrated by the OSCE monitors who published maps in the opening days before they were withdrawn from the from the, the battle theater, showing <clears throat> that the that the attacks were coming from the Ukrainian side onto the republics of, of the Donbass the side. So at the very outset, there were these proofs verifiable by third parties. But when you look at the the damage, which in some cases we've seen yesterday and today, apartment buildings, multi, 10, 15-story uh, high apartment buildings, in which all the, all the windows are blown out, in which there are, there are signs of some significant damage. The BBC lady in front, with uh, very well-dressed, by the way, we're uh, all set for, for, for combat, is, is telling us, just look at this horror, this brutality of the Russians, and look at that building. Four people died here. So four people died in a building of 15 stories high that has had massive damage. The fi- figure should be four or 500 people died. That tells you that the Russian story is right, 
and that the Western story is hot air. The story, the Russian side says that the buildings were, were vacated, the residents were chased out, and or were, were sent into, this, into the basement, and Ukrainians put heavy weapons on the upper floors to fire on the Russians. So I, I don't, as I said, the, the, what these little indicators are that the Russians are much more believable, credible than the Ukrainians. But I don't pretend to say that, that one side is all guilty and the other side is all innocent. No, it's never like that in a war. That's one of the things I used to be annoyed with even decades ago when they talked about surgical strikes that the U.S. was conducting somewhere. There's always civilian casualties, even if you're not trying to inflict them. It's funny that you brought up interview with the woman because just before we got a chance to talk today, I saw, I think on the NBC website, one of the news websites, an interview with the boxer, Vitaly Klitschko who's the mayor of Kiev, and they asked him, they said, the Russians say they're only hitting military targets. What do you say? And he said a, a B word other than baloney. And then he pointed to a building, I don't know if it was the same building, but a building a lot like you describe and said, look, does this look like a military target? But if this is true that the Ukrainian soldiers are embedding themselves in them, well, that would be the story. So what's your sense of how the Russian population views this war? We're being led to believe there's massive protests against it and that there's some chance that Putin is in danger internally because of prosecuting this war. What's your sense of that? Well, a couple of days ago, on the weekend, Navalny tweeted, this is quite amazing, just remember that he's in a prison camp, and yet he asked, they allow him to have his, his mobile phone and to tweet as he wishes. He tweeted to his supporters on the outside to hold illegal demonstrations against the war. This was reported on, the, the, there were demonstrations, they were not sanctioned, but there were a handful of people who showed up for them in Moscow, in Petersburg. I can't speak about the country at large. That's to say, there were very few demonstrators, very few. The, does that mean that everyone agrees with what's going on? Of course not. But just keep in mind, Russia is a country with 145 million people. Moscow is a city with about 15 million people. And when you speak about demonstrations, and you, do, and you don't have large squares filled with tens and twenties and 30,000 people, these, then the demonstration is a zero. The, what is happening, and is only the beginning of a real split in Russian society, which was latent and is now fully exposed between the patriotic forces and the fifth column, the people who are traitors in simple language, as viewed by the patriots. This is an issue which I don't think is particularly surprising in highly polarized United States. And the who are the traitors? I think here's a specific of the Russian situation. A lot of them are intellectuals. They, the intellectuals are not necessarily wealthy, but they enjoyed their creature comforts and they enjoyed their travel. And they are where the Russian society was split for the last 250 years between Russia, between Westernizers and, 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 and Slavophiles. The Westernizers always had their their little spot in in Paris or somewhere else, and they and they always felt that they were living in a kind of barbaric society back home. That that has been a constant in in Russian society over several centuries. Now it has erupted; it's going to erupt in a in a very 
evident way when this war ends because of the behavior of some very visible people in the in Russian society, which the bulk of the people, by the bulk, I mean 70 or 80 percent of the population, who are essentially supporters of Vladimir Putin, and that includes all the so-called simple people, they are incensed that so many celebrities, these singers, the people who who populate the, the magazines of on, on stars, these people left town at once. They're now, a lot of them are in Israel. They aren't necessarily Jewish, but they happen to have friends there. And it's, not, it's a good deal warmer and the beaches are quite all right off of Tel Aviv right now compared to downtown Moscow. Or they claim that they have therapeutic clinics that are important for their health that they run away to. But then you have one of, one of the country's best known newscasters, Sergei Biryov. He does. He has been doing for for almost twenty years the Saturday evening news wrap up, and he's a man who got away with his very questionable loyalties. He has both both uh, British and Russian passports. His family is based in London. His children go to English schools, and he's the most one of the most visible newscasters on a on a widely watched weekend news wrap-up. Well, he, he didn't, he's gone off to Brazil, supposedly to research what the Brazilians think of the Russian-Ukrainian war. They're all, these are all leaving, these are rats leaving the sinking ship. And that's not my view. That is the view of them, of a large swathe of the population. Now, what retribution will these people face if they ever dare to show their faces in Russia again is something we'll see. But the 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 um, talk shows, and I followed closely Russian political talk shows. It is a genre that's extremely popular in Russia. There are daily shows, and there are some are in the daytime, and most are in the evening, prime time. The daytime shows are always slanted a little bit towards women's interests for obvious reasons, housewives being at home. But that's a popular genre, and I can tell you, I watch very closely the swings in mood. And the latest swing is very patriotic and calling for purges of the government to get the rat, all those people, why did they, how could our minister of finance, how could the head of the Russian bank have left $300 billion of our taxpayers' money sitting in American safes? How could they do that? Well, that's a little bit over the top, a little bit excessive in the criticism because the whole world has its money in US safes. And although the people of Iran and the people of Afghanistan they have their special grievances over the U.S. seizure of their assets. No country, big country, like Russia, has been subjected to the freezing of their assets. This is new territory. Now, the end result of this war will likely be that neither side, neither the Ukrainians nor the Russians, get all they want. I think both of them will subscribe to the principle that a bad peace is better than a good war. So it will. The Russians will get. Certain issues, they will. Ukraine will be neutral. They will not enter into any bloc, including NATO. They will have to recognize the independence of the two Donbas republics. It will have to recognize the permanent loss of Crimea. I think those are givens. The rest, other thing else, will be negotiable. There'll be a lot of other things to be negotiated. However, <clears throat> the the fallout from this conflict will be reverberating for for decades to come. It is the first all-out challenge to American global hegemony. 
by a military power that is almost a peer, in, at least in the European theater, is certainly a peer to the United States. And the financial community will be rocked by what I just described. The seizure of, of those assets puts in question the entire Bretton Woods system and the viability of the American dollar as the reserve currency of the world. Russians, Russians have seen $300 billion frozen, not yet confiscated, though I don't put it past some senators to want to confiscate it and hand it over to Mr. Zelensky, but that hasn't happened and probably won't happen. However, the Chinese have $3 trillion on deposit with the United States. Uh, that's worth a nuclear war. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that the world's financial system will never be the same again. American dollar's dominance is going to decline very sharply, starting with the introduction of a Chinese-Russian oil gold-backed yuan, which is now in negotiation and will be a direct challenger to the petrodollar. So getting back to a resolution, and I've seen that President Zelensky has made some noises about we need to not join NATO or give an assurance that we won't. So he seems open to that. If Ukraine and Russia reach an agreement like one you've described, does Putin need something from NATO in order to go home? Or is that good enough? And he's made his point and he's confident he won't see the kinds of interference that he's seen for the last 20 years after this. How do you see that? Well, nobody can speak for Putin. He does a very good job speaking for himself and anticipating his moves. Frankly speaking, none of us could anticipate his moves. It was very difficult to be prescient or at least bit accurate in forecasting this war. And in forecasting exactly how the war would be prosecuted. So how the peace will be realized is very difficult to say. But I think that he doesn't need to press for a NATO rollback as such. I think that this military operation has at a minimum proven that the value of U.S. security guarantees to its NATO partners is very, very doubtful. If the United States refused to risk nuclear war over Ukraine, is it going to risk nuclear war over Estonia, one million population? I think that the Russians have made their point. The game is up. NATO is not as is, is standing on, on legs of clay. And to although he is a lawyer and would like to see these things set down on paper and signed and stamped accordingly, I think that he will take comfort from the de facto situation that he has dethroned NATO. My impression of him is, <laughs> I'm sure this is unpatriotic of me to say, is that he's shown tremendous restraint in the two decades he's been around before this invasion, in that there were two coups, one in, I think, 2004 in Ukraine, and then the second one that you mentioned in 2014. But now he's gone in there but I, I want to think that he would not attack a NATO country. And of course, I wouldn't be worried about him going into Poland. But you mentioned the Baltic states, which are on his border, at least two of them are. Is there any chance that he tries to reclaim those? Absolutely none. This is a very clear U.S. and NATO propaganda to justify never-ending hostility to Russia. Now, it didn't just come from nowhere. These countries, the frontline states like Poland and the Baltic states, 
they are, but particularly, let's look at the Baltic states for a minute. These countries became countries also only after the breakup of the Soviet Union. In downtown Tallinn in Estonia, there is a museum of the history of Estonia, which surprisingly, despite all the propaganda flying around, acknowledges that in the last 2,000 years, Estonia was a free and independent country for about 20 years. <laughs> Before that, it was somebody's vassal state. And in the case of Russia, it was the control over the Baltic states goes back to the 18th century, Peter the Great. And it, it was the result either of dynastic marriages or of military conquest. But they weren't conquering free and independent countries. These were parts of Sweden or parts of neighboring countries. So the, the countries that we recognize in the, in the, in the, in the uh, Baltic states, they became independent nations only with the breakup of the Soviet Union and more or less with the agreement of the Soviet Union. It just never anticipated that they would be used by the United States, again, as platforms against itself. The, the net result, what we, people speak of the Russian Empire, or the Soviet Empire, empires generally end when the subject peoples revolt and declare their independence. The, the, the Soviet Empire ended when the Russians revolted and claimed their, they were the first country in the Soviet Union to declare their independence of the Soviet Union. That is not the way the game is supposed to be played. They had enough of all the parasites that were in the Soviet Union. And they also had enough of paying all the freeloaders in Eastern Europe from their perspective. Every country has its own perspective. Bulgaria wouldn't see itself as a freeloader. The Russians certainly saw Bulgaria as a freeloader. The only thing you get out of them was a Shopska Salata, which is a, a, a Bulgarian version of, of, of a Greek salad. That, that was the only good thing that came out of that country. And they and in return, Russians were pumping oil and gas at, at highly subsidized prices. So the feeling within Russia was that these territories that the Soviet Union controlled were a net negative to their welfare, not a net positive. The only logic for the Soviet empire was buffer states to ensure that the move that Hitler made straight across the border into the into the Soviet Union would never happen again. But this, but the price for that buffer state status became prohibitively high. And so the notion that Russia would ever take these countries back is complete rubbish. It's not, it's not a question of one man, two men in, in, in the Kremlin thinking that way. The, all all of, of, of Russian elites understand that. They have no interest whatsoever, least of all, taking over countries which now would be as opposed to, to their rule as the Ukraine would be today. These are non-starters. They're only a good, a good storyline coming from Washington for its purposes, not serving truth. So the first time that I heard you interviewed was on the Tom Woods show a few weeks back, the other Tom. And at the end of that interview, you had a rather chilling message, which was that there was the possibility of seeing Russian nuclear subs just outside the United States territorial waters in a show of force with this escalating. Do you believe we're beyond that at this point, that this is starting to resolve itself into some kind of a deal between the Ukrainian government and Russia? 
or is that still on the table? What do you think? It's not possible to say with certainty that the eventuality of a showdown with Washington will not occur. But I'd say that depending on the role of the United States in the forthcoming final negotiations between Russia and Ukraine, it may be averted. As I said, the Russians have been very cautious about playing their cards. They've had all aces, and they haven't put them down on the table. They never cut off the supply of gas and oil to Western Europe. They could have do it at liberty at any moment. They didn't do it. They could at any moment show those submarines in a peekaboo move rising to the surface and waving at American shores. They're there, but they haven't done that. They haven't made this open statement of threat. So I think it's very doubtful that in the days ahead, there would be anything that would raise fear in Moscow and compel them to move to the next stage of a plan C or plan D in which they directly threaten the United States. Well, I know I've kept you longer than I said I would, but is there anything we haven't covered that you think would be helpful for American listeners to know to give them a less cartoonish picture of what's going on here? Well, for the reasons I mentioned, since Russian media are shut down for Western audiences, there isn't a great deal you can do. We have in the States rather developed a culture of dissident news portals, and yet they have to be used with a certain amount of caution too. But there are some sources of information. I'm a subscriber to a couple of them. And if you look around, you can find the one that I subscribe to, and it's available actually to anybody, is Johnson's Russia List. David Johnson is an academic. He's based in a university in Washington, D.C. And he has about 600 or 800 subscribers among academics with a Russian and Ukrainian interest around the United States. But you don't have to be an academic. You can go to his website, Johnson's Russia List, JRL, look it up in Google, and sign up and receive it daily. It's a compendium and digest of commentary and often source documents. He will take down what anyone else could do in normal times, go to the Kremlin Rue, which is the Russian president's website, or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Russia, and take down their English language translations of important documents. But he does that systematically, so you don't have to go looking for it. But mostly, it's commentary of all sides. <clears throat> it is not pro-Putin or anti-Putin. It's simply a lot of information, quite enough of a, of a diet to keep your audience informed without going to great extent, great lengths. And this is not a digest that has commentary on it. So nobody is cussing out anybody else on it. It's simply source material that is of high quality. Okay, well, we'll certainly link to that. And of course, to your website, which is gilbertdoctoro.com. And keep watching this. And I really appreciate you coming and sharing your insights. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.